Today's episode is brought to you by Privacy.com, the totally free service that lets you buy anything online without having to give out your credit card number and lets you prevent companies from overcharging you. Privacy.com lets you create virtual credit cards to use when you shop. You can create as many virtual cards as you want. You can delete them. You can freeze them, unfreeze them, and set spending limits on each card. There are countless different advantages to using a service like this to pay your bills and buy things online. For instance, use a virtual credit card when you sign up for a free trial and never worry about canceling or being charged when the trial is over. You can find out more. Get 100% free and unlimited access and a $5 credit just for trying by going to privacy.com slash best, and you can find that link in the show notes. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about two of the most popular politicians who have announced their candidacies for the Democratic nomination for the presidency, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. Clips today come from Deconstructed, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Michael Brooks Show, the Majority Report, and Sojourner Truth. Laura Bazelon in the New York Times on January the 17th published what I would argue was a pretty damning and disturbing piece outlining how Kamala Harris was anything but a progressive prosecutor back in California. Laura writes, and I quote, Time after time, when progressives urged her to embrace criminal justice reforms, Ms. Harris opposed them or stayed silent. She also says Harris fought to uphold wrongful convictions, even when they involved, quote, evidence tampering, false testimony, and the suppression of crucial information by prosecutors. Laura goes on to point out that when California's death penalty was ruled unconstitutional by a federal judge, Harris, then Attorney General, appealed that ruling. She opposed a bill requiring her office to investigate shootings involving police officers. She laughed when a reporter asked her if she'd support the legalization of marijuana. Now, people change. Politicians' views evolve. They do, over time. And some of these issues that are being raised go back almost a decade. And yet, on Monday night, in a CNN town hall with Jake Tapper, Senator Harris refused to explain or even try and justify any of this stuff. And in fact, when explicitly asked by a member of the audience how she reconciled her past with the kind of progressive stances she takes today, the senator replied, I've been consistent my whole career. My career has been based on an understanding, one, that as a prosecutor, my duty was to seek and make sure that the most vulnerable and voiceless among us are protected. And that is why I have personally prosecuted violent crime that includes rape, child molestation and homicide. And I have also worked my entire career to reform the criminal justice system, understanding to your point that it is deeply flawed and in need of repair. Well, she hasn't been consistent. That's just not true. I mean, why say that? Why not just own it and say, you know what? I've moved on. I've grown. I've evolved. I'm sorry. But no. Pressed further by Jake Tapper on her contentious record, she refused to budge and instead invoked her own identity and background as a defense against the very legitimate criticisms of her record. I am a daughter of parents who met when they were active in the civil rights movement. Nobody had to teach me about the disparities in the criminal justice system. I was born knowing what they are. She then even offered this ludicrous straw man of an argument. There are some people who just believe that prosecutors shouldn't exist, and I, and I don't think I'm ever going to satisfy them. Sorry, Senator, that's bullshit. That's a complete evasion. It's not that prosecutors shouldn't exist. It's that prosecutors, especially Democrats who one day want to run for president, shouldn't have a record of such awfulness 
on drug cases or police use of force cases or official misconduct cases or legal marijuana or the death penalty. They shouldn't brag about being a cop who used their badge to scare the shit out of the parents of truant kids. Disproportionately poor and non-white parents, I might add. I decided I was going to start prosecuting parents for truancy. Well, this was a little controversial in San Francisco. <laughs> so I sent a letter out on my letterhead to every parent in the school district. A friend of mine actually called me and he said, Kamala, my wife got the letter. She freaked out. She brought all the kids into the living room, held up the letter, said, if you don't go to school, Kamala's going to put you and me in jail. Did she really giggle while talking about threatening to lock up parents? Wow. I'm joined today from San Francisco by Laura Bazelon, Associate Professor of Law at the University of San Francisco, author of the book Rectify, and the author also of that scathing New York Times op-ed on Senator Kamala Harris's prosecutorial record. And from the offices of The Intercept in New York by Jamila King, race and justice reporter at Mother Jones magazine and host of the Mother Jones podcast. She's also author of the recent piece, The Secret to Understanding Kamala Harris. So you write in your piece, Jamila, Harris is not interested in crusading from the outside. Her mission is to reform the system from within. Did she do that in California, in your view? She certainly tried. <laughs> she tried for two decades, I think, to, um, you know, she wrote a whole book that was just released recently about her her time in public office in California, in San Francisco, and then later in the attorney general's office. And there were some great things that she did, right? You can point to certain programs um, that at the time were seen as revolutionary, right? At the time were seen as these huge steps forward. So programs like Back on Track that tried to divert nonviolent first-time offenders. Yeah. Um you know, the, but it's it's tough, right? Like, I think that in San Francisco, she also uh, did spend some time cultivating relationships with uh, black activists and sort of folks who were on the ground doing the work. Um, and they're still very, very supportive of her. But it's a very fine line to walk. And I think that a mm. lot of folks who've been walking this line are, are in a really tough position right now. Everyone kind of says it's complicated. Laura. I mentioned in my intro the case of Daniel Larson, an innocent man who Senator Harris, when she was AG, Attorney General in California, opposed the release of, mainly over a legal technicality. He ended up serving 13 years of a 27-year sentence uh, before he could get out. You mentioned in your piece the case of George Gage, who I believe is still in prison today, serving a 70-year sentence. Explain to our listeners what that has to do with Senator Harris. What happened was that George Gage in 1999 was accused of sexually assaulting and abusing his stepdaughter, Marion. Gage, who was, there was a hung jury the first time, turned down an offer essentially of time served and said, I am not a sexual predator. And in his defense, he had an expert saying that he had none of the characteristics of one. The jury convicted based largely on Marion's testimony. And then it came out afterwards that the prosecutor had held back a lot of important information that he was required to turn over, including psychiatric and medical records, one of which in her mother's own handwriting said, my daughter is a pathological liar. And she lives her lies. The case was appealed. The trial judge confronted with this evidence reacted really strongly and overturned the conviction. But it was reinstated on appeal because, ironically, the jury never considered the evidence because, of course, they were not allowed to. And then all these years later, it gets to the Ninth Circuit in federal court. And at that point, it was Kamala Harris's job as attorney general to decide what to do. Was she going to defend this conviction or was she going to acknowledge the serious constitutional problems with it and ask that it be overturned so that George Gage could be retried. And what was her decision? 
Her decision was to defend the conviction on a technicality. And so she sent her deputies in to argue that George Gage should not get relief because when he was in federal court in front of the trial judge, forced to be his own lawyer, because in habeas, you do not have the right to a lawyer, he failed to state the claim in exactly the way that he was required to do, the way that the law mandated. And that was the argument that her deputies made. he's still in prison today, George Gage? Yes. George Gage is now 80 and he is still in prison. On CNN's town hall discussion with Senator Harris on Monday night, uh, the senator said one of the reasons she became a prosecutor and rose up the ranks is because she wanted to reform the system. Is that a fair description of what she did in your view, first as a DA and then as an attorney general? In my view, no. I don't want to take away from the fact that she did start the Back on Track program and that it did give first-time offenders a second chance and that it was, in its own way, a revolutionary program. That was during her time as district attorney. I think then you need to fast forward to what she would call inflection points and what I would call situations that call for courage and conviction in principle. So, for example, the George Gage case or the Daniel Larson case that you mentioned Mentioned. But we can also go on. There were activists of uh, of color, activists at the ACLU, all kinds of folks, including members of the Black Caucus in the state Senate, who were very, very disappointed, for example, when she opposed bills in 2015 that would have required her office to investigate officer-involved shootings, to take them out of the control of the local DA, which was often seen as being too cozy with the police. Those same folks were very taken aback when she opposed mandating that all police officers wear body-worn cameras. Anti-death penalty activists and people who care about racial justice were very concerned when she defended the death penalty. So a federal judge found that it was unconstitutional. At that point, she could have stood down and instead she appealed and had it reinstated at the Ninth Circuit. So we're talking about decisions that affect hundreds and thousands of lives. It's interesting you mentioned the death penalty case, but didn't she also as a DA in San Francisco oppose calling for the death penalty for a guy who'd killed a cop, even though she was under pressure from her own party, from Democratic senators at that time? So as Jamila mentioned, she seems to be walking this line. On the one hand, she's she opposes saying the California death penalty is unconstitutional, but then she opposes calling for it earlier on in her career. It's kind of hard to make out where she stands. It's tricky, and I'm not arguing that she wasn't in a very difficult situation. And I think she was very brave not to seek the death penalty in 2004. That was the platform that she ran on, and she stayed true to her promise. Then, though, you need to look at her recent record and the kinds of decisions that she's made. And it may be that that was a very scarring experience because she experienced a tremendous amount of backlash, including Dianne Feinstein at the officer's funeral, standing up demanding the death penalty and getting a standing ovation. So you do face a lot of pressure and a lot of backlash for standing up for your convictions. But I don't think the lesson should be that you then stop standing up for them. Yeah, that's a really great point, Lara. And, you know, I do want to go back to that decision in 2004 or 2004 to not seek the death penalty. She paid a huge political price for that. And it's one that you can see that she tried to rectify in her run for attorney general um, by courting police unions, right? Like, and that was, I I think that turned a lot of people off, right? She's this liberal from San Francisco who's going around, you know, saying that she's against the death penalty. And so she did become more of a centrist in that regard, right? She's a politician, a consummate politician in that she will sort of do what the political calculus says is necessary. Just on the kind of politician. You say in your piece, Jamila, she, quote, long tried to bridge the tricky divide between social progressivism and the work required as a prosecutor, sometimes more successfully than others. Overall, do you think she managed to bridge that divide? Was she successful overall, do you think? I think that the backlash that you're seeing from black progressive activists right now shows that she's got a lot of work to do. 
Um, you know, I think that she's been able to put together if she can put together a team that, you know, can can actually get people on her side. That's a different thing. But, you know, she at least in my circles, her announcement uh, shows that she's one of the most contentious figures to run for president uh, in recent memory. It's funny that you mentioned black progressive activists reacting badly to her because a lot of her defenders on Twitter, for example, on social media, especially in kind of quote unquote mainstream Democrats, if I can call them that, are suggesting that a lot of the criticism against her is driven by racism and misogyny or a combination of the two. Do you think that's fair? What's your reaction to people say, well, well, this is typical. It's because she's a black woman. Well, I think it depends on which criticism you're talking about, right? If you're talking about who she dated 25 years ago, <laughs> then yes, that is absolutely the driven Willie Brown by, stuff. Yes, right, racism and sexism and misogyny. I, I think that if you can keep the criticism to her record, um, those are very valid criticisms that people should be having. Those are criticisms that sort of lay at the heart of where criminal justice reform is moving in the next 20 de- or two two decades, right? So, you know, I I, I think that. Um, it's a really tricky position for a lot of people. But again, I think, you know, if you I think black folks are smart enough to know that, you know, you don't have to vote for somebody just because they're black um, mm. or just because they're a Democrat. And so I, I think that all of that tension is sort of being played out in the very beginning stages of this campaign. Laura, is she being held? Is Senator Harris being held to an unfair standard? A lot of her defenders say her critics are guilty of racism or misogyny. Uh, Others are saying, you know, she's being held to standards that other Democrats aren't being held to. Other Democrats aren't having their records on criminal justice being scrutinized or criticized in the same way. People point at Bernie Sanders and say he voted for the 1994 notorious crime bill. That doesn't get mentioned. Uh, What's your reaction to those people who say that, Laura? I agree that it depends on who the critic is and where the criticism is coming from. But no other candidate is running as a progressive prosecutor. No other candidate has seized that label and affixed it to themselves. And that term has a very specific meaning. It means that you seek justice and you make hard decisions, including embracing criminal justice reforms. And at almost every inflection point, she did not do that. And the other thing I want to say about what's so disappointing to me in this rollout is what I keep waiting for is a reckoning from her. You mentioned the CNN town hall last night. She was asked very pointed questions by a young man in the audience about her record as a prosecutor and asked specifically about these tainted convictions and other decisions. And rather than respond directly, she just responded with a bunch of platitudes about how she's always been consistent, not true, and talking once again about back on track as if that was somehow the answer to all of these questions. And not engaging with the specific raised by you in your piece. Not uh, at all. Here's a question, though, Laura. What do you say to people who say, you know what? None of this even matters anymore. Yes, it gets a question in a CNN town hall, but it's ancient history. Some of this stuff is from almost a decade ago, and people don't care about it anymore. People in Iowa and New Hampshire aren't going to be basing their votes on what she did as a DA back in San Francisco in 2004. What people in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and all over this country are going to care about is a leader, someone who is a true leader, which means that they go first, even if there aren't a crowd of people in front of them and a crowd of people following them. What they're going to care about is someone promising, for example, to be progressive and then actually delivering on those promises and not holding their finger to the wind and doing the political thing. And so in the end of the day, whether their key issue is the death penalty or wrongful convictions or police brutality, what they're really looking for is someone who stands behind what they say and walks the walk and and okay so and do you think that's she's that person is she authentic i have not seen the famous question i have not seen 
any real evidence that she is who she says she is. She says she's a progressive prosecutor. That is not the case. And I haven't seen any reckoning with the voluminous evidence indicating that that is really a problem and not an accurate statement. It was September 1998. President Bill Clinton was arguing to the public that he should not have to resign. Uh, Google was barely two weeks old. And the next generation of young adults was getting prematurely saddled with ridiculous amounts of debt. College, for many, the first taste of freedom and of responsibility. And for some, easy money and big debts. Free gift by the Citibank card? Lured by cheap giveaways, pens, CD holders, college kids can get credit cards easily. I didn't have to put anything down that I had a job or that I was really able to pay it. That can lead to big trouble. The average credit card debt for students is $1,800. A recent study by a Harvard law professor shows a quarter of a million young people file for personal bankruptcy before they're even 25. We're talking about young people who are beginning their lives, their professional careers, and starting families by declaring themselves financial failure because of the debt they've run up while they're in college. Recognize that familiar face? Elizabeth Warren was a professor at Harvard Law School and an expert in bankruptcy law. But at this point in her career, she had not only gained a reputation for being able to explain the financial industry and the financial system in a way that made sense to regular people at home, she also specifically gained a reputation for telling you things that were helpful to your own life, but that the financial industry really didn't want you to hear. When credit card companies prey on the vulnerable, it's just a way to fleece the young people of America. Elizabeth Warren has long had a knack for explaining what regular middle-class people in America were feeling on a very personal level, what was happening to them, and importantly, explaining why it was not necessarily their fault. A a side effect of Elizabeth Warren's public profile before she ever became a figure in American politics was that she took the shame out of the financial struggle that regular working Americans have faced as the system has served them less and less well over time. The title of her 2003 book about why things were so tough for middle-class families was plain. She called it the two-income trap. It was a blockbuster for a good reason. She based it on research she had done with her daughter that showed middle-class families not struggling because of outlandish spending on things they couldn't afford. They were struggling because they had, in many ways, been set up for failure. What we discovered is that what we think of as ordinary consumer spending Families are spending less. So the question became, why are they going broke? And the answer is the basic expenses, the things it takes to raise a family in the middle class. Mortgage, health insurance, a second car so that mom can get to work, tuition for preschool, tuition for college. Those are the expenses, those core expenses that are slamming families against the wall financially. Getting out there, speaking plainly, telling regular people at home, understand the system that got you, that's gotten you where you are. This is not of your own making. The system is stacked against you, and here is why. That was Elizabeth Warren's public profile. It spoke to people at home watching TV. 
uh, spoke to Democrats as they pursued new ways to try to protect middle class families and consumers at the federal level, particularly in the context of the Wall Street collapse in 2008 and 2009. Now it is the centerpiece of her potential bid for the White House. In our country, if you work hard and play by the rules, you ought to be able to take care of yourself and the people you love. That's a fundamental promise of America, a promise that should be true for everyone. I've spent my career getting to the bottom of why America's promise works for some families, but others who work just as hard slip through the cracks into disaster. And what I've found is terrifying. These aren't cracks that families are falling into. They're traps. America's middle class is under attack. They are traps. This is the talk about consistency. This is the message that for decades has made Elizabeth Warren a fairly terrifying specter to Wall Street and to the people who benefit from how the system works now and the way the system is stacked against regular Americans. Those attacks sharpened when she decided she herself would jump into electoral politics in 2012, when she unseated one of the coziest and best paid friends of the financial industry, Republican Senator Scott Brown of Massachusetts. He was an incumbent Republican senator at the time. She beat him by eight points. Now she just got reelected senator in Massachusetts by 24 points. And now she has announced her formal exploration of a run for the White House. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. In 2013, Amy Errett founded the company and named it after her daughter on a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. Traditionally, there have been two options outdated at-home hair color, or the time and expense of a salon. Dissatisfied with the status quo, Madison Reed is reinventing the way women color their hair by offering the quality of salon color, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. Experience beautiful multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door, on your schedule, for under 25 bucks. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of Love listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com, and use the promo code LEFT. There's plenty of clips of plenty of politicians, even ones whom I oppose, who I'm I'm very willing to be like, you know what, whatever. That was the context. That was the time. I'm probably more willing to do that about Kamala Harris than many other people in my political profile, just to be blunt. That being said, and even just coming from an experience of poverty personally, to – I mean – we know over-sentencing. We know attacking sex workers. We know all these huge problems in her record, which I hope you'll elaborate on. There is something profoundly pernicious about looking at a problem like child truancy and thinking that it is a, a criminal problem and not one of justice and compassion, let alone sort of laughing off criticisms of it. So we will play this clip again. I would not be standing here were it not for the education I received. And I know many of us will say the same thing. And I believe a child going without an education is tantamount to a crime. So I decided I was going to start 
prosecuting parents for truancy. Well, this was a little controversial in San Francisco. <laughs> and frankly, my staff went bananas. They were very concerned because we didn't know at the time whether I was going to have an opponent in my re-election race. But I said, look, I'm done. This is a serious issue, and I've got a little political capital, and I'm going to spend some of it. And this is what we did. We recognized that in that initiative, as a prosecutor and law enforcement, I have a huge stick. The school district has got a carrot. Let's work in tandem around our collective objective and goal, which is to get those kids in school. So, to that end, on my letterhead, now let me tell you something about my letterhead. When you're the DA of a major city in this country, usually the job comes with a badge. And there is often an artistic rendering of said so badge creepy. on your stationery. So I sent a letter out on my letterhead to every parent in the school district, outlining the connection that was statistically proven between elementary school truancy, high school dropouts, who will become a victim of crime, and who will become a perpetrator of crime. We sent it out to everyone. A friend of mine actually called me and he said, Kamala, my wife got the letter. She freaked out. She brought all the kids into the living room, held up the letter, said, if you don't go to school, Kamala's going to put you and me in jail. <laughs> yes, we achieved intended, intended effect. And she also, to be clear, I, I just, uh, Bree, please take over, but I just want to be clear. I got, I, and this is one of the, <laughs> I literally got some pendant responses like, well, what if it, what if it helped the attendance rate, which is a, if that's your response, uh, you're, you are wrong. You're in the wrong moral universe. <laughs> she also did actually prosecute people. She did. So there wasn't just mm -hmm. emotional terrorism. There was actual prosecution. But please, Bree. So my colleague, my former colleague at The Intercept, um, Zed Jelani, wrote a piece that was argued that it worked. Um, and then my colleague at Current Affairs, Nathan Robinson, wrote a response to that piece that I, I thought was pretty excellent. Um, that basically drew the comparison to Singapore and said that, there, you know, there's there are posters on the street that say, if you spit your gum out, you're going to get caned. And they do that <laughs> in Singapore. And it works. It's clean. It's a very clean place <laughs> very by all accounts. Clean, well-run authoritarian state. That's right. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I think that's the point there. I mean, the, the problem is Nathan also wrote a different article um, about about Kamala Harris that, you know, when, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And when all you have is the ability to prosecute, you start to look at every problem and think that you can prosecute your way out of it. And it's just really disturbing to look at something like truancy, to profess to have concern for the fact that truant kids will end up in the criminal justice system, the one you have exert power over and authority over, and then decide that your ability to contribute your 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 um, way to contribute is not going to be to step out of your professional role and think about what you can do you know to support legislative initiatives to bring attention to various causes to contribute financially etc cetera, etc cetera. um but to simply prosecute their parents and brag about your authority as a cop and your badge on the letterhead it's so creepy that's really the only you know, word. To threaten people it's into monstrous. compliance. To, to, yeah. to see a family whose kids are struggling to get to school on time and to think that the reason why their parents aren't forcing them to has to do with their parents' negligence and not the fact that low-income parents are often working multiple jobs, aren't able to be there when their kids are going off to school. The kids are going to schools that no sane person would want to step foot in because they're so poorly run and dangerous. To not think of that whole cluster of 
of humanitarian concerns that are driving these impulses into to to assume that it's something about just individual will and something that you can like you know rest people into is such a cruel and base perception of humanity and shows such a flat understanding of the social factors that um go into an outcome like truancy that that bothers me on many many levels bother it, it gives me concerns about who she is as a leader much more broadly right. than just this narrow issue, which in and of itself is very, very bad. No, that's a microcosm. That's no, that, that is an issue where you can absolutely arguably say this is a window into a profoundly disturbed moral compass. And I, and I want to say, you know, with criminal justice issues and all that comes with them in terms of race, in terms of economics, in terms of also just our broader, well, I'll get to that to a second, but I, I think actual really important values like restoration and compassion. All of the candidates, okay, we, let's just stipulate everybody, all of these candidates have cast bad votes, including Bernie Sanders. All of them or most of them have uh, engaged in, uh, you know, tough on crime discourse. Uh, Cory Booker did some very aggressive police maneuvering in Newark. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are, to me, stand out significantly in this category. Mm. He wrote the 94 crime bill, which is one of the most massive expansions of the criminal industrial complex in U.S. history. And she prosecuted the fuck out of it. If you take these issues seriously, I don't know how you come back from those two. It's hard. And I want to be really clear. Like, I am someone who does believe in redemption and rehabilitation and – would create some space for her to reckon substantively with her record. Yep. And to talk. Like if, if if she was out here saying, look, I look back at the decision I made and I am I cringe at watching that video. Right. You know, I I I thought I had to make compromises that I realize now I didn't have to and were wrong and weren't worth the outcome. And I am committed to making amends in every way I can if I were to be elected. You know, she might be our candidate. We might all have to get behind her. Yep. And I would have a lot better, easier time voting for her if she reckoned with this in a serious way, just like if Hillary Clinton had reckoned with some of her past instead of pretending like everything was, you know, sexism, some of which it was, but not everything. Of course. Um, right. It would have been a lot easier to put a, lo- a lover for her. Um, but, you know, she hasn't. She hasn't more than she hasn't. There are multiple clips of this nature where she keeps repeating the argument. She says even right there, my staff thought this was controversial. My staff didn't want me to do this. She knows so people have told her what the implications of this are, and she persists in doing so anyway. Although I have a skepticism about one part of that clip because she frames it as the staff is concerned electorally. I don't <laughs> Not ethically, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Bullshit. I don't buy that for a second. There – it, even in San Francisco, and I know that – I mean, look, let's be real. San Francisco already at that point had been well gentrified. For American – most of modern American history, a DA could always bet on running a far right. And in fact, Kamala Harris ran against a real progressive in yeah. one of her DA races and attacked them from the authoritarian yes. right on crime. The concern was people who actually worked in that office, if I'm projecting – was of people who actually had some ethical qualms about terrorizing poor families. Not a, this isn't going to pull well in the mission district. That is fucking bullshit.
our country, if you work hard and play by the rules, you ought to be able to take care of yourself and the people you love. That's a fundamental promise of America. Pause it for one second. Now, I should tell you, that construct was a Bill Clinton construct. I was just going to say that. And um, uh, we can debate the, the value of that. I mean... Better that you're you're using some type of like folksy phrase from Bill Clinton than Ronald Reagan. Let me put it that way. And so, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that's what Democrats would do. They would put, uh, you know, they would start their videos with we can be a shining beacon, you know, for the world or something. And so we're making some progress. But go ahead. This should be true for everyone. Growing up in Oklahoma, that promise came through for me and my family. After my older brothers joined the military and I was still just a kid, my daddy had a heart attack and couldn't work. My mom found a minimum wage job at Sears, and that job saved our house and our family. My daddy ended up as a janitor, but he raised a daughter who got to be a public school teacher, a law professor, and a senator. We got a real opportunity to build something. Working families today face a lot tougher path than my family did. And families of color face a path that is steeper and rockier, a path made even harder by the impact of generations of discrimination. I've spent my career getting to the bottom of why America's promise works for some families, but others who work just as hard slip through the cracks into disaster. And what I've found is terrifying. These aren't cracks that families are falling into. They're traps. America's middle class is under attack. How do we get here? Billionaires and big corporations decided they wanted more of the pie. And they enlisted politicians to cut them a fatter slice. They crippled unions so no one could stop We're them. We're going to turn the bull loose. Dismantled the financial rules meant to keep us safe after the Great Depression and cut their own taxes so they paid less than their secretaries and janitors. It's time to write the rules for the middle class. After Wall Street crashed our economy in 2008, I left the classroom to go to Washington and confront the broken system head on. Elizabeth Warren, apparently not afraid to tangle with Wall Street. Elizabeth Warren is heading into the lion's den. Mrs. Warren goes to Washington. She did. We created America's first consumer watchdog to hold the big banks accountable. A woman who has warned of another meltdown. If Washington doesn't I never thought I'd run for office, not in a million years. But when Republican senators tried to sabotage the reforms and run me out of town, I went back to Massachusetts and ran against one of them. And I beat him. And we are going to turn Washington back to the people. Who do we love? Who do we love? Today, corruption is poisoning our democracy. Politicians look the other way, while big insurance companies deny patients life-saving coverage, while big banks rip off consumers, and while big oil companies destroy this planet. Our government's supposed to work for all of us, but instead, it has become a tool for the wealthy and well-connected. The whole scam is propped up by an echo chamber of fear and hate designed to distract and divide us. People who will do or say anything to hang on to power point the finger at anyone who looks, thinks, prays, or loves differently than they do. But this dark path doesn't have to be our future. We can make our democracy work for all of us. 
We can make our economy work for all of us. We can rebuild America's middle class. But this time, we okay. got to build it for everyone. All right. Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the interesting thing about that video as you watch it is uh, early on, she uh, addresses, you know, the um, the economic plight of 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 not just you know the, the middle class but also of specifically of uh of minorities in this country um and then everything else is i think sort of very in maybe slightly different rhetoric but uh certainly populist in tone and attacking the the big banks attacking the insurance companies uh and then also you know throws in some resistance stuff you know, she flashes a picture of uh, AOC and, uh, you know, among other uh, sort of incoming, um, uh, you know, left leftists, uh, I guess, at least in the context of the Democratic Party, um, House members. And so I don't know. It's um, it's interesting because this is where you see at least she plans to go early on. And that is, I think, to attempt to secure those supporters of Bernie Sanders. I think, I, uh, let me say, I mean, I agree with, I think, first of all, what I like about it is just reminding everybody of why we all liked her in the first place and getting away from the sort of recent mishap with the DNA thing and reminding us that she's has a really powerful record on banks and consumer issues. And that's how she, the only reason she's here is because of great work in that regard. I And, and I don't want to get, too nitpicky about rhetoric but i do think to me like the old clinton line points to basically just a bigger difference of opinion and i think she does within a much more genuine populist way have much more belief in the american meritocracy than i do and i think sanders does and that's an actual difference between a somewhat more democratic socialist position and a progressive liberal one. And I think it's actually could be great if the debate is on the merits of those things, but we shouldn't pretend they're, they're the same or that they're as systemic. And I also think ironically that, and I've been banging on about this, but it's true that when Bernie ran in 2016, I loved what he said about Kissinger and I loved how he moved a bit on Israel Palestine, but he had no foreign policy. In fact, he said some ridiculous things about teaming up with Jordan and Saudi Arabia. Now, he is the leader with regards to Yemen, as right. an example. So that's created a whole other justification. And if, as applied to her, I'd really like to see her remind us of why she was so good to begin with banks and regulation. And she's got to move forward on a vision of the world. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to... 
but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. I'd like to welcome uh, Stephen Azunas, Professor of Politics and Coordinator of Middle Eastern Studies at the University of San Francisco. He just wrote the piece, More APAC Than J Street, Kamala Harris Runs to the Right on Foreign Policy. Uh, Stephen, welcome back. Good to be with you again. Okay, so Stephen, you heard one side of the uh, a problem that uh, progressives and certainly people in the Black Lives Matter movement um, have with uh, Kamala Harris. I mean, she's, you know, people are saying, well, she's for Medicaid for all. Uh, it seems to be a, a red line of sorts um, among among progressives. But a lot of people don't know about this other side of Kamala. Uh, tell us, why did you write that article? Well, this article focused exclusively on her foreign policy. Uh, and it hasn't been getting as much attention. You know, those, in fact, <laughs> foreign policy as a whole has not quite been getting the attention it has during some uh, recent periods in, in uh, U.S. history. Uh, but uh, Kamala Harris's uh, views are, 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 are sketchy. She's only been in the uh, Senate for two years, and this is the, her first opportunity in terms of her public life to really address foreign policy issue. But from the outset, in fact, her very first vote, she... Uh, placed herself to the right of most Democrats uh, by uh, attacking, uh, defending uh, President Trump and attacking uh, President Obama in regard to the question of Israeli settlements. Uh, she she co-sponsored a bill uh, which basically uh, uh, said uh, that uh, Obama should have vetoed this otherwise unanimous uh, U.N. Security Council resolution in December uh, 2018, in the waning days of, of his presidency, uh, and, and, and that, that said that uh, uh, not only you know, called on both sides to uh, refrain from violence and incitement and, and to, to negotiate, etc., but uh, pointed out specifically that the Israeli settlements uh, were illegal, and Israel had to s- stop expanding them. This, this reiterates what the World Court has said, what four previous UN Security Council resolutions have said, what the, the, the consensus of international legal opinion. And uh, she was saying that was wrong, and that the United Nations, in fact, had no business weighing in on the issue. And then that raises the larger question: If the United States cannot, or sorry, if the United Nations cannot weigh in on something as basic as the uh, 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 questions of international humanitarian law and territories under foreign belligerent occupation, what else is the UN supposed to do? Uh, I mean, this is uh, uh, she's saying, oh, they should just negotiate among themselves, uh, ignoring the great, great asymmetry of power between the Israelis and the Palestinians under occupation. So in other words, it raises serious questions about her commitment to uh, international law, uh, human rights, and, 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 the, uh, and the UN. Uh, this, is a very, this is a right-wing position. 
Yeah, yeah. So, I, uh, you know, we'll we'll have to see how all of the debate goes because I think the Democratic Party they're banking on the fact that well, black people and black women in particular will vote for somebody who's black, but you know, voters are getting a lot more sophisticated than that and it's a question of exactly what they are standing for and if uh, in order to get a black woman president, the Democratic Party are ready to throw the Palestinians you know, under the bus. Um, where can people go to to see uh, your article? And just a quick final word from you, Steve. Sure. It's, uh, it's the Foreign Policy in Focus uh, website. That's fpif.org. And uh, the title actually is uh, More APAC Than J Street. And that this is quoting from the very mainstream Jewish Telegraph Agency, noting that Kamala you know, there are two main Zionist lobbies, uh, the more moderate J Street, which is pro-Israel but opposes the occupation and many of Netanyahu's policies, and there's APAC, the right-wing one, uh, that supports the occupation in Netanyahu, and basically this argues that uh, it's not just that uh, she takes a strong pro-Israel line. Most, almost all uh, Democrats in Congress, uh, say just a few, uh, uh, do that, but that she allies with the most right-wing of the pro-Israel elements, mm. unlike uh, the, the majority of, of Democrats. And so I point out that uh, it's not just another one of these Democrats has kind of a blind spot towards the Palestinian. There, there are many of those, unfortunately, but she is among the very worst. And the implications for her broader uh, views on and what kind of foreign policy she would have uh, is something that voters need to think about. You gave a big speech earlier this week where you spoke about corruption. You talked about a sweeping uh, anti-corruption bill that you want to bring in to, quote, clean up Washington, D.C. You plan to introduce in the Senate in the coming weeks. What is that legislation? How is a bill going to clean up Washington, D.C.? That's a big ask. Okay, so let me start with the problem I'm trying to clean up. Uh, Let's say spill on aisle three here, you know, and get everybody over to look at what's wrong here. Rich and powerful corporations figured out decades ago that they could have a business model that was about, oh, let's come up with a great product. Let's sell that product. Let's put some money into R&D. And let's put some money into capturing government to work for us, Hmm. to make the rules on us just a little easier. Because it turns out that investing money And lobbying Washington, investing money in influencing Washington, invest, hey, a hundred million, and it can pay back in the billions, even trillions over time. Right now, people get bribes from their companies to come work in government. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, Gary Cohn was being mentioned as an economic advisor. Goldman Sachs said, hey, baby, go do this, and we will give you more than a quarter of a billion dollars to do that. That's just that's just a pre-bribe mm. so that he would go in and advise the president, and while he's advising the president— He's on my screw over Goldman Sachs hey, while he's advising the president. Exa- in fact, you know, I'll bet Goldman Sachs got more than a quarter of a billion dollars worth of value out of that Indeed. one, baby. Or let's look at it on the back end. Everybody who's in government right now who might just be looking over the edge to say, you know, someday this gig will be yeah, What's my next job? But what's my next gig? Mm. What's my next job? During writing Dodd-Frank, 
the financial regulations. Do you know that there were 125 former congressmen and top legislative aides who were lobbying? And what were they lobbying on behalf of? The big banks to make those regulations as weak as possible. So my bill just says, when you know what the problems are, you know what the solutions are. The first one is, it says you stop the pre-bribes. You don't get to pay people to go take those fancy government jobs. Let's be clear. Goldman Sachs was not offering Gary Cohn a quarter of a billion dollars if he wanted to go take a job as a firefighter or he wanted to go take a job as a teacher. It was only if he was going to be in that position to be able to advise a president. So for openers, no, no, no. You do not get pre-bribes. Second part, while you're serving in government, you've got to divest. You can't own individual stocks, duh. You can't own parts of companies that are going to be affected by the decisions you make. And this applies to the president as well, Uh, I guess? Yes, yes, yes. This applies to everyone. And you've got to be totally transparent about it. And the third one, coming out the other side, I'll tell you one thing we could do for openers. How about if we put in place for the president, for senators, for members of the House, for the heads of all of the agencies, for all of the cabinet officials, and for the top aides, a lifetime ban on lobbying. A lifetime ban. For several several hundred people there you've just mentioned. Hey, listen, boo-hoo. My view is... So so why would people, why would your colleagues in this place here on Capitol Hill, including your Democratic colleagues... Why would they vote for this? This is Turkey's voting for Christmas. So so the question is, can we get enough American people to demand that they vote for it? That's what democracy is about. I hope you're right, but it is a very radical proposal. You bet. You're proposing as a democratic senator. Now, when it comes to taking money from big corporations, you don't need me to tell you that the Democrats don't have clean hands here. I understand. Um, they haven't been reluctant recipients of that kind of money. Barack Obama, uh, when he was running for president in 2008, actually raised more money from Wall Street than John McCain, the Republican challenger, did. Um, We know about the Clintons and all of their donors, some dodgy, some not. Um, You have Senator Robert Menendez, who won his primary this week, who's been accused of all sorts of things involving corruption and bribery and gifts. So would you accept that your party, even when it was in office, is, if not more guilty than the Republican, as guilty, nearly as guilty? Oh, come on. This is not about comparisons this is about it is because you have to win over all these people to get them on board your bill and i'm saying it's not like your party's going to be behind you but but here's here's what i think it's it's if people are behind us that's how we make change Mm. this place is corrupt and the and the problem is that everything i just described the pre-bribes the taking care of yourself instead of the american public the doing your job and keeping an eye on what the next job yeah. is in the revolving door every one of those it's things today is legal but they're all legal so i'm from abroad people around the west of the western world look at the role of money in american politics yeah. wow there's nothing comparable in france right. germany canada britain but you also have the supreme court it's not just about this place it's not just changing legislation even if you change all the laws here the supreme court comes out and says you know corporations are people money is speech all of these things that are now right. entrenched uh, in constitutional law culture precedent how do you get past that can you you know a lot of people feel very defeated saying well you know we can change we can vote people out or in but supreme court has said go for it with the spending okay so let's cut right to the bottom line of this understand i taught law for a very long time and talking about constitutional amendments it actually makes my eyelashes frizz because that just seems like oh my gosh what a dangerous place to go but on this one It may be where we have to go. Um, Citizens United 
is taking the legs out from underneath democracy. And we have to be willing to overturn Citizens United. One of the tools available to us is a constitutional amendment. The second tool available to us is a Supreme Court that revisits some of the facts that underlie Citizens United. But the bottom line is we it's hard. Mm. Yeah, I get it that it's hard, but we can't give up on it because money is going to drown our democracy. And if we don't start fighting back and fighting back more aggressively, then we are part of the problem as well. conversation with Mike from Pennsylvania uh, about Kamala Harris. And um, uh, he was saying that he thinks that Kamala Harris's call for Medicare for all was disingenuous. And I said that may be the case, but it's a very hard argument to make at this point based upon the way that she phrased things. The argument that uh, Mike from PA was making yesterday was that she's, she has no you know real depth in terms of her relationship to Medicare for all. And my argument was, well, she signed on to Bernie's proposal almost immediately as a co-sponsor. And it is true that she's also co-sponsored two or three other Medicare for all light proposals. Yeah. She's She's, hedging her bets. Well, I mean, uh, it, ar- definitely arguably. She was co-sponsor on a bill called Medicare X from uh, Michael Bennett and Tim Kaine, which would just add the uh, public option on the Affordable Care Act exchanges, uh, which, of course, again, it would be helpful, but we're talking about that would impact at the mo- uh, only a 10 million person pool of people. It wouldn't help anybody outside of the exchanges with all the issues that we have with our health insurance, including cost, including um, the, the, the pain in the ass that insurance is. Um, Brian Schatz would create a public option uh, broadly for everybody outside of the, uh, uh, to do a, a buy-in to Medicaid. But again, um, I mean, I know some people on Medicaid, depends on where you live, as we, as we heard uh, yesterday uh, or two days ago. But, um, that's not the same as having a Medicare for all, one that is not uh, a function of the states, but rather, uh, you know, one that the federal government would administer. So, uh, but she said very forcefully two nights ago on a CNN town hall, I am for Medicare for all. I am for, and Bernie's plan calls for the slow phase out of the private insurance and business. She basically said, I think it was like, let's move beyond all that. It right. Was, it, with specifically with regards to these private in, uh, insurers, that was her strongest answer of the night. Yes, yeah. and and understand that this would phase out, and and you would still, I think, even under Bernie's plan, you wouldn't necessarily have all of these. Um, th- there would just be no private insurance companies that themselves are in the insurance business, as opposed to maybe administering some of the government plans. Like we have that relationship with some uh, Medicare providers, right? They pay through. But nevertheless, today there's a story out that um, 
she is distancing herself or not distancing herself, but uh, she's put out a, uh, a statement that uh, one of her, uh, you know, press people have that, you know, she's open to keeping private insurers. Now, now look, I don't, I actually think that it, here's the thing. I don't know what this tells us about what she would do, but it definitely tells us about how deeply she is committed to a vision or a policy here. If she had said the other night, look, I'm open to getting rid of private insurers, but I think there's some important reasons why you might want to keep it. Or, I mean, if there was anything that implied she's done some thought about this and has a relationship to the policy. Cause I think there could be arguments, like I say, for keeping some uh, private insurance uh, as supplemental. I mean, certainly done another. I mean, I think there's arguments. I don't know if I agree with them or not, but there's definitely legitimate arguments. Well, well, and let's make it clear, though. Bernie's plan doesn't make private insurers illegal. He just doesn't want to go through them to administer a Medicare for all system, which is not the same thing. Well, right. And there's I mean, no, no reason it, to go through them unless you want to. I know, but that's not happy. my argument. My argument is that when assessing whether she uh, feels she has really focused on this question as opposed to ticking off a box. These are things that you should have pretty much worked out so that you don't have to 24 hours later walk it back. That to me is suspicious. This is very reminiscent in my mind of Barack Obama claiming that on day one, he's going to renegotiate NAFTA and then Two days after that, we hear reports of Austin Goolby going up to uh, his uh, one of his chief economic advisors up in Canada, being out of the country. This is the way you do it. Leaking that, you know, meeting with the Canadians, assuring them that we're not going to renegotiate NAFTA, which was a backdoor way of letting corporations know. Letting the interest of the Chamber of Commerce know we're not going to renegotiate. Right. That. So they're actually, the difference is actually the Obama Goolsby move was way more sleazy uh, because it was secret, right? This well, just looks more, I mean, secret in quotes. I understand. But like, yeah. It but was I, more adept. It let's was put it much, that way. Well, that was the second thing I was going to say. Yeah. Sleazy and way more effective for to, to back channel something like that. But I think, like, yeah, I, I've held the position of particularly on things like Medicare for all, where she doesn't have a, a long track record one way or another. And she signed on to the Bernie bill and she gave a great answer. I was uh, following the CNN town hall and tweeting about it and talking with people in the discord about it a little bit. And I was like, and that was one where I said, Oh, that's excellent. That's a very, very strong answer. Um, but I mean, such a quick reversal. It's a good time to also, you know, re-review her donor lists and I think her just sort of basic inclinations as well. And I wouldn't have said that uh, yesterday because I think I was arguing go, I that know it's you were impossible to make a to, but to I but but conversely, not a bad bet to be wary of her commitments on policies like that. Yeah, on the donor tip. I mean, what this says to me is that when the second she gets any pushback from the business sector, she blinks. And that doesn't bode well for the future. And you do need to look at who's giving her money.
In terms of the Democratic Party right now, this is going to be a huge year in Democratic mm -hmm. politics. I mean, it's been it has been sort of the the Trump show yeah. since 20 since the 2016 election because it's been a, honestly a bizarre spectacle to have yeah. somebody of this caliber behaving the way that he is in that office. This will be the Democratic Party show this year, and there will be an incredible competition to be the candidate to take him on in 2020, and the Democrats will get to show what they're made of in terms of having control of the House. How do you fit into this year's Democratic Party? We've got this new class of House lawmakers is coming in with outspoken lefties and socialists and, and environmentalists and feminists and all sorts of upenders of the status quo. Yep. Um, I know that you're a progressive. You voted 13% of the time with Donald Trump, which is one of the lowest percentages of anybody in the Senate. How do you fit in with the Democratic Party and where do you see your party right now? Look, I, I don't think of this so much in terms of party. I think of this as people who want to see change and the kind of change they want to see. This is going to be the Fisher cut bait year for the Democrats. And it's going to be how do we think government should work and who do we think government should work for? In fact, let me give you an example of that. Just think about this upcoming Democratic primary. Is this going to be a Democratic primary that truly is a grassroots movement that is funded by the grassroots, that's done with grassroots volunteers? Or is this going to be something that's just one more plaything that billionaires can, can buy? So I think this is a moment for all of the Democratic nominees as they come into the race to say in a Democratic primary, we are going to link arms and we're going to say grassroots funding. No to the billionaires. No to the billionaires, whether they are self-funding or whether they're funding PACs. We are the Democratic Party and that's the party of the people. That's how... We not only win elections, that's how we build movements that make real change. And that's what we've got to do. We've got to win, but then we've got to produce. And that's only going to happen if we've got a whole movement underway. When you talk about billionaires in the Democratic primary, uh, Tom Steyer is mm -hmm. considering running. Michael Bloomberg is apparently considering running. Do you specifically mean that anybody who's a billionaire should be precluded from running? Of course or not. I just mean that people should not be self-funding. And they should not be funded from PACs from other billionaires. Mm. That a primary is an opportunity to hear from the grassroots, to see what you can build, to see what kind of energy is out there. Get out there. Trust your message. Trust what it is that you're fighting for. And if someone else wants to fight for something different, trust them to get out there and fight it. And then let's see where grassroots America is. Let's see where people across this country say, you know what? I want to be part of this. I am in this fight all the way. We've just heard clips today, starting with Deconstructed, diving into Kamala Harris's record as a prosecutor. The Rachel Maddow Show explained Elizabeth Warren's long record on consumer protection and the real reasons behind rising bankruptcies. The Michael Brooks Show followed up with more on Kamala Harris's time as a prosecutor, with a focus on her policy of threatening arrest of parents of truants. 
The Majority Report listened and then reacted to Elizabeth Warren's campaign announcement video. Sojourner Truth explored Kamala Harris's foreign policy regarding Israel. Deconstructed spoke with Elizabeth Warren about her anti-corruption legislation. The Majority Report talked about Kamala Harris's minor backtrack on health care and what that could mean about her commitment to the policies she's supporting. And finally, we just heard Elizabeth Warren speaking with Rachel Maddow about the importance of running grassroots campaigns rather than self-funding or depending on big donors. Members will be getting a bonus episode with a special guest, Amanda Hoffman, in which we discuss our activism segments, our healthcare system, and one of the ways we might actually get Medicare for all, but still manage to screw it up in the implementation. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Jeff down in Florida. Um, I'm calling about the whole Virginia Democratic issue. The problem I have with the governor, yes, I believe everybody should get a second chance, especially, you know, old habits. You grew up in a different time and things have changed because we've grown as people, hopefully. The problem with I have with the governor is, is he didn't handle it right. He didn't come out, admit to it straight up right away. He was, he was talking about Michael Jackson. If you've ever put blackface on your face before, I'm doing the moonwalk. You know, just admit your mistake and be a leader and, and get on with it. I have a problem with somebody in his position that's wishy-washy like that and just didn't do it. I believe that the attorney general came when this happened. He came out and he, he admitted he did it. I don't know if, if someone, you know, found found him out and outed him or if he just realized I need to admit this. Um, so yes, there, you should be um, given a second chance, but you have to, you have to admit your fault right away. And, and, and the blackface thing is one thing, but the KKK, I mean, that, that is not cool. We all know what that stands for. That is not cool. The blackface thing goes back to the silent film days when there were no black, well, they wouldn't let black actors in films. And so they used to, uh, you know, um, just do that horrific uh, portrayal of, a, of an African-American in movies. But anyway, that's my take on it, Jay. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Kitty. I'm calling you from Eugene, Oregon, about the episode you aired, uh, 1250 on, uh, February 15th. The caller at the end wanted to know how do we bring people back in. I think it's a really good discussion. I think the first thing we need to talk about is reparations. If somebody has done something that has caused harm, they're apology means nothing if the person is still suffering from the actions of that of of whoever did that thing and so for an apology to even count they need to have done something for that injured party to to make them be hurting less from the direct cause of their actions so that's the first thing is when somebody does somebody else harm 
it's one thing to just give a verbal apology. It's another thing to prove you're sorry and undo some of the damage you did, or else you're not. You're. It's just wind. It's just words. They mean nothing if there's no action to follow up on it. The other thing is some contrition about what was done. Grudgingly undoing the harm is not an apology. It may be justice, but it's not an apology. There's no contrition there. So first, the person has to not be sorry that the other person experienced hurt feelings or whatever, but they need to understand. They need to... My bird wants to have some input. They need to understand what they did. They need to name what they did, and they need to name the, the, the harm that it caused. They can't just say, well, I'm sorry that you you saw what I did is hurtful. That's not an apology either. So a good apology means you name what you did, you name that you understand how it hurt the people that you harmed, and then you do something to prove that you're sorry, and you do some action to make sure that the person you hurt is seeing some some kind of redemption from you. I don't think it's that complicated. I don't know where the, the confusion and the nuance comes in. If you hurt somebody, you undo the hurt you did. It's not complicated. It's not nuanced. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jay. Thanks so much for the show. This is Matt from Arizona calling you again. It's been a little while. I just listened to the wonderful show you did about the four freedoms. And I had a little quick response to the gentleman who called in about Bernie Sanders supporters hating female politicians, which, of course, you know, there's a lot of a lot of nonsense to that effect out there. And, you know, uh, the most obvious thing that jumps out to me is just Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is doing such amazing things. She's so incredibly popular. And I think if you could find a Bernie Sanders supporter that loved Bernie but hated her, then absolutely you would have someone who is completely sexist. But the fact is that you, a lot of Bernie people love her. Almost everyone that I know does. And I, I think that by the same token, people support Warren. So when you talk about Kamala Harris and, and Hillary Clinton, and these are female politicians that maybe folks are questioning their progressive bona fides. Uh, there's, there's more to it than just sexism, of course. Although I think your your point that everyone is in fact sexist is really important one to know and to think about. Anyway, thanks again for the show and keep up the great work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And just a first quick note, uh, I would love your opinion on today's episode. I, I haven't done candidate spotlight episodes maybe ever. Uh, or if we have, it was about 10 years ago. So this is irregular. Obviously, there are a lot more candidates. I could do more of these if you guys like them. So let me know what you thought of this episode and if you want me to do more. Now, today's comments are going to be fun. We're talking about uh, the 2016 election. We're making predictions about the 2020 election and and we're exploring how and why people feel the way they do 
about candidates, particularly Clinton and Sanders. And I think it's going to be really informative. So this conversation kicked off a week or two ago with a voicemail from Jason. Jason called in and ranted a bit about the existence of sexism in the Bernie Sanders supporting wing of the Democratic Party. He, he wasn't accusing Bernie Sanders of being uh, sexist. He, I think he may have mentioned that Bernie wasn't like great on women's issues, which is true, but uh, particularly his supporters, even if Bernie himself wasn't super sexist, he, he seemed to attract a, a group of people who were very unable to be aware of their own sexism and their support of Bernie came out with a lot of sexist tinged rhetoric a lot of the time. And my comments in response were that, yes, of course that was true, but mostly because everyone is affected by sexism, literally everyone, men, women, progressive, conservative, everyone is affected by sexism. And so people who support Bernie and are opposed to Hillary, it's both. It's both. It's uh, They believe in Bernie's policies. They disagree with some of uh, Clinton's policies. They uh, like the things he said and dislike some of the things she said. And also, there is sexism involved. Of course there is, because you can't get away from it. And and the real conflict in, in that campaign was everybody's inability to recognize that sexism was at least a part of everyone's feelings. So then uh, to follow that conversation up, I got a message from John, and this is where we kick off the new part of the conversation, which I think is really interesting. So John wrote on the blog, he said, uh, in part, Many Bernie supporters, he, he was appreciative of both Jason and my comments, and then continued to say, many Bernie supporters, women as well as men, just fail to recognize the subtle and sometimes blatant sexism existent in the campaign and how raw it has left many Clinton supporters feeling, myself included. My opinion is that Bernie support primarily sprung from anti-Clinton rather than pro-progressivism sentiments, not all of them conscious. And my quote-unquote proof of this is a wager that Bernie's support will sink to single digits by February 1st, 2020, and that the positions of the eventual nominee will be indistinguishable from those of Hillary. So that's really interesting. And so I don't agree with John's predictions at all. And I responded to him saying as much, but I, f I find his comments to be a, a great insight into the thinking of Clinton supporters and, and their ability to think basically that Bernie support was mostly fabricated. It was both, but mostly illusory and based on sexism and just general anti-Clinton Ideas and rhetoric and propaganda and the decades of, uh, you know, right wing attacks on, on her. So I, there was a lot to pull out. My, my response, you know, I, I pointed out that even Hillary's supporters who want her to run again were predicting that she would change her positions from 2016 to 2020. So I disagree that this times, you know, 2020's Democratic nominee will have policies indistinguishable from Hillary because even if Hillary r ran and won her policies would be distinguishable. People were predicting, you know, 
here comes Hillary 4.0. She's going to change everything about herself again, and it's going to be great. Uh, that article was written in the Washington, uh, uh, Wall Street Journal. And then also the idea, just the idea that Bernie support, which is like fanatical, was just anti-Clintonism made no sense to me because uh, like, since when can you generate that level of excitement for a candidate based on just disliking the other person? I, you know, I pointed out that we hated George W. Bush with a fiery passion and nobody treated John Kerry like he was a rock star at the vanguard of the revolution, the way people treat Bernie. So I, I don't think adding the element of anti-Clinton sexism would be enough to create Bernie-level adoration, if that's really what it was all about. And besides, if you're an anti-Clinton sexist Democrat who, as John is predicting, really just wants, you know, regular, moderate Democratic policies, there was another candidate who had a penis who would have fit that role. His name is Martin O'Malley, and he got absolute crickets in that campaign. And just by comparison, Bernie's approval ratings right now, or at least a couple of weeks ago when I was answering this and looked it up, is 57%. Martin O'Malley's approval ratings right now is 23%. So I just don't think that that's a good way to compare these candidates. And then c- continuing on that topic of, of progressivism and the next candidate, uh, John wrote back, he made another note, and he said that uh, according to the book Identity Crisis and the research behind it, the authors conclude, and this is John's writing, he says, quote, uh, the authors do not see evidence of sexism distinct to Bernie supporters. Okay, that's good. Continuing. Uh, but also note that there was no significant difference in the progressivism of Bernie supporters versus Hillary supporters, although Bernie supporters perceived themselves to be more progressive. So the perception is definitely there. I 100% agree. Bernie supporters, myself included, perceive ourselves to be more progressive than Hillary voters and supporters in general. And what I often heard from Hillary supporters is they're like, look, Clinton wants all the same things. She's saying the same things as Bernie. Why do you think she's not as progressive? She wants universal health care. She wants universal college, et cetera. Like, how, how do you think that just because Bernie's policy, he like gets to the same conclusion a little bit differently that doesn't mean that Clinton like doesn't want any of that stuff and doesn't want all these progressive ideals to be fulfilled. And so th- there are a couple of things. As was pretty well reported after the campaign, once all the numbers had been crunched, the biggest difference between Sanders and Clinton supporters was their perception of how rigged the system was. That's what I see as the key issue of, you know, since Citizens United, money in politics, et cetera. So whether that makes them more progressive or not is a debate over the meaning of the term progressive. But generally speaking, Clinton supporters, uh, you know, they don't want a rigged and corrupt system, just as Sanders supporters don't. But Clinton supporters don't think the system is as rigged or corrupt as Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, Sanders supporters perceive it to be. So there, there's a distinction there, but just to keep our focus narrow on policy differences uh, between the two camps, I, I came up with this. I think, I think this uh, explains pretty well. Think of the three little pigs. On the surface, they have identical policy goals. 
all of them want to build a shelter that protects them. So if you come in with a research team and you survey all the pigs, you conclude, well, all the pigs agree. Shelter is good. It's worth investing in. We need it. We're going to build it. That's the policy. And then, you know, okay, so the only difference is it's like small details about, you know, what you're going to build the shelter out of, the materials you're going to use, you know, how much you're going to invest, how much time you're going to take to build it, that sort of thing. But like those details are so minor. Why would you conclude then that the pigs have like different policy goals or like really have a different mindset? They have the same goal. It's just slightly different ways of getting there. No big deal. So if you, if you ask the questions like that, well, yeah, Sanders, Clinton, we all have the same policy goals. We're all exactly as progressive. So Clinton wants universal health care, but she said, quote, people who have health emergencies can't wait for us to have a theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass, unquote, referring to Medicare for all. So she stated really clearly she won't fight for a single-payer Medicare-for-all system, but Bernie will. Clinton wants everyone to be able to afford college, but she wants a means-tested system that only benefits the poor, you know, which is admirable, but, you know, she says, I don't think taxpayers should be paying to send Donald Trump's kids to college, unquote. So she's not going to fight for a universal system that guarantees to help everyone, but Bernie will. So are Sanders supporters and his policies more progressive than Clinton and hers, you know, again, everyone wants the same thing. It's just a different approach. And so this is where the three little pigs come in. The point is how you build your system matters. How universal healthcare is implemented matters, not just to how well it will work, but to how long it will last. Bernie's policies are universal, like social security, which has been around for decades, It's built like a brick house and very likely able to repel attacks against it. Clinton's policies are means-tested, they're meant to only help the poor, and that's like our hodgepodge of welfare programs like SNAP and TANF and so on, which are, again, all admirable goals. But these systems are ultimately houses made of straw and sticks. Programs designed this way divide people by class and give Republicans the perfect crack to place their wedge so that they can pit the so-called makers against the takers, stoking racially tinged anger, and they succeed in destroying programs like that that help people who need the help because The Republicans really want to destroy those programs, and they get moderate Democrats like Bill Clinton to go along with it, who helped destroy welfare as we know it in the 90s. We've seen this play out. We know that systems like Social Security can last practically forever, and we know that programs that only target the poor like welfare end up getting gutted. We know this. This isn't guesswork. So yes, Maybe we all want the same policy outcomes. We want people to be supported. We want people to have equal access and maybe rich people don't need help and poor people do, but that is not the way to build a good system. So if you come to me and you say, we have the same policy outcomes, but you want to build me a house of straw or sticks, and you're going to tell me that it's going to protect me when the wolf comes to blow it down, as we know it will you know, I may agree that we want the same outcomes, but I'm still going to fight you on your ideas for the sake of building a set of policies that has the best possible chance of surviving long into the future. 
So again, I don't know. Does that make my perspectives more progressive? It just depends on how you define the word progressive, but I think it makes my policies a hell of a lot smarter. I know that. So for Clinton supporters who are under the delusion that she has the same policy goals as Bernie Sanders, you are missing the point. (laughs) There are dramatic differences, even though on the surface, it looks like we all want the same thing. So this idea that John is talking about, that Bernie supporters are primarily just anti-Clinton voters and the Democratic Party as a whole, it just really prefers moderate positions and policies rather than bold universal programs, is really telling, I think. I think we can learn a lot from this. And I think that what John and a lot of Clinton supporters are suffering from is a bad case, bad case of the false consensus effect. This is a cognitive bias uh, problem. And I just pulled this quote from Wikipedia. In psychology, the false consensus effect or false consensus bias is an attributional type of cognitive bias whereby people tend to overestimate the extent to which their opinions, beliefs, preferences, values, and habits are normal and typical of those of others, i.e. that others also think the same way they do. This cognitive bias tends to lead to the perception of a consensus that does not exist, a false consensus, unquote. And to be clear, everyone is susceptible to this. Bernie supporters also can think like, well, of course, everyone would want the same policies I do. But, but these Clinton supporters, it, it takes, they take it so far that they really believe that they are discounting everything the Bernie supporters say that there is that there are policy differences and they think, nah, there's not really policy difference. We all want the same thing. It's just sexism that's tainting your perception. So, you know, they, they see what they want to see and believe that we all want the same outcomes. And Clinton is just as progressive as Sanders because, you know, they believe that all the little details of how we get to universal coverage or universal college or whatever doesn't really matter all that much. And so if we agree on all the policies, how could there be any difference? And well, okay, I guess the only thing we're left with is that people hate Clinton because of sexism. So then you get to people like John, who believe all of that to such a degree that he thinks that Bernie's support is like completely fake and that his support will drop into the single digits by this time next year. And, you know, and as he said, the ultimate candidate will have moderate policies. That's a really reasonable conclusion to come to if you think that Bernie's support was a total illusion built on sexism. I happen to disagree. And and so what John said is basically, look, I'm putting this bet out there. And if I'm proved wrong, well, then I'll bow to the evidence. So great. I've marked my calendar. We're going to revisit this bet this time next year and see where we stand. And I'll just finish with this. In the previous conversation... Uh, after Jason called and I talked about the sexism that everyone has, uh, including all Bernie supporters, I, you know, I focused my comments at Bernie supporters and told them they need to recognize the effects of structural sexism on everyone, including themselves. So today I direct my comments to Clinton supporters with this compromise. If Bernie supporters, as you want them to, uh, need to understand the realities of systemic sexism, which they do, then Clinton supporters need to understand that genuine support for Bernie based on his policies is just as real. And just to note something that you've probably already heard, Bernie launched his 2020 campaign a couple of days ago, and as CNN reported, quote, 
Bernie Sanders raised nearly $6 million in the 24 hours following his 2020 presidential campaign launch. His campaign said Wednesday, a record-smashing debut that easily outstripped his Democratic rivals. So, we'll see how things go. And just so you know where I'm coming from, I have set up monthly recurring donations of $27 each to both the Sanders and Elizabeth Warren campaigns. So if you have thoughts on any of this, I'd love to hear it. The number to dial 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.